Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Got your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Micah this morning. Micah, of course, is a prophet that we read about in Old Testament scripture. And I I love the prophets so much. Just these everyday nobodies who had zero interest in conforming to the convention of the religious mainstream. And their perspectives have so much that we can learn from now. Now, what we know about Micah is that he was a very um, simple man who came from a tiny town, a tiny um, city. And this gave him a perspective where he got to the point where he has a, um, a heart that is bleeding for the oppressed. Well, Micah had prophesied in a, under um, a kingship of a ruler whose name was Uzziah. And under Uzziah's reign, there had been a lot of prosperity in Judah as well as in Israel. And yet, as happens so oftentimes, though, along with with all of that prosperity came apathy. It came a lot of arrogance and a lot of idolatry. And so as we read the book of Micah, this is a very urgent time in the history of God's nation because God has made it abundantly clear that his judgment is coming upon a great many nations. But what Judah does not understand, though, what they absolutely do not get, though, is that although they are loudly making claim to be God's nation, they are also one of those corrupt nations God is speaking about when he says, I've had enough and my judgment is on its way. And to make a very long story short, in summary, here is what is happening in the book of Micah before we get to our text. There are many rich people who are robbing poor people of of land and of money. There are many judges who are perverting justice in the land. Yet most of all, though, there, there are a lot of colleagues of Micah's who are also a prophet of God, who have been sold out to greed, who are actually receiving bribes so that they can prophesy what is intentionally false and misleading to the people. And so God has witnessed all of this corruption in his so-called nation. And now God is demanding justice for what they've been doing. God is reminding them of their end of the covenant that they have still not not, um, honored in their everyday lives. And so as we see a nation come to grips with their guilt, really the way that they respond to it is in the form of a big question. And so we come to Micah chapter 6, and we begin in verse 6. And Judah has a big question that they ask of God. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 6, what their question is, is, With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, or with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
And then in verse 8 comes one of the most exquisite statements found anywhere in the Word of God. Where in verse 8 it says that, that He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. I think another way of expressing what their question is, is how do we approach God? How do we honor God in a way that makes him happy, that makes him pleased with us? I think another way of interpreting what their question is, is what does God want from me? What is God expecting from you? What gift do we give the one who has everything? And Judah is just sure that they know the answer to that question because notice in verse 6 where they say, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? And it goes on and it goes on and on. And I think you and I live in a religious culture where, where just about all of us came up in religious environments where, where what had been instilled in us by, by many church um, environments in the past is that when we come into God's presence, really the way that we honor God, the way that we approach God is you, you have to have hair that is neatly combed. You have to be clean shaven. You've got to wear your absolute best because after all, it's Sunday morning and we have got to, to all pass the maker's inspection. A lot of us grew up thinking that this is how we honor and please God. This is what God wants. I have walked in streets in Brazil and in Ecuador where what you saw was just breathtaking, abject poverty. I mean just poverty in your face kind of stuff where, where you look at it and you immediately burst into tears. And yet then, in this exact same neighborhood right next door to all of these homeless beggars is this cathedral, and you walk inside, and, and to walk inside, all that you, you are, are, are laying sight of is just this breathtaking, magnificent splendor. Buckingham Palace kind of stuff where there's just millions of dollars of, of golden statues and golden images just everywhere that you look, and millions and billions of people have lived and have died believing in their heart of hearts, this is what God wants. This is what God is expecting of us. I went to a conference not that long ago, and a minister had conducted a survey of sorts where he asked a lot of congregations in America what the three most important goals of that church were, what, really what the three most important concerns were. And over and over again, predominantly, what the answer was is that the three most important things of any church are what is your attendance number, how much is your contribution, and how many square feet is your cathedral? Now, those can be very, very, very important things, but what I noticed and what that minister also noticed glaringly is that it was not about let's make disciples, but rather what it was all about is numbers on a flannel chart. Many, many, many churches think this is what God wants. And notice in the text how verses 6 and 7, Judah begins very small. 
As they say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? But then very quickly it, be, it begins accelerating up that hierarchy of, of sacrifice where they are in essence handing God a blank check as a nation saying, God, what is your price? How much, God? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before the God most high? I think another way of, of understanding this in our own modern day language and worship vernacular is, is, is when we sing to God in worship, shall we sing and never go out of tune? Is God wanting us to sound exactly like Ella Fitzgerald and Josh Groban when we sing to him? When we pray to God, shall we come before him with the eloquence of a William Shakespeare sonnet? When we give to God, shall we sacrifice every single dollar in our bank account? Is God desiring that we put our wedding rings, keys to our car, the keys to our house in the collection plate for him to be pleased? As we live the Christian life, is he wanting us to have the ability to quote the entire Bible front to back or to walk on water and to turn it into wine? Is this what God is expecting of us? Is this what God wants from us? And I think as Judah explores all of these hypothetical questions, what it is revealing to us very loudly to us is that Judah has forgotten entirely who God is. What pleases him? What, what God wants more than anything else? And this is what happens when we emphasize ritual above righteousness, or quantity above quality, or performance above transformation. And I think my generation in the church, as well as many other people scattered throughout churches, have recently arrived at a point where we're just looking at all of this stuff that we have concocted. And we're just asking ourselves and we're scratching our heads thinking, I mean, is this what this is all about? I mean, is that what this whole thing is? About how many golden statues we can erect in our cathedrals. About ironing all of the wrinkles out of a white dress shirt. About how many notes we are singing in tune as opposed to out of tune. I mean, we can hold up a Bible, have a picture taken of us holding a Bible, but, but that does not mean that, that we have been grandfathered into the church. What matters is whether or not those words are living within our hearts, influencing our actions, influencing the way that we look at our fellow man. And I mean, it was true in 720 B.C. as Micah writes this book, and it's still true in 2020 A.D. is that God is looking at all of this stuff that is so sacrosanct to us. And yet God is just thoroughly unimpressed with it. God doesn't even want most of it. And here is a timeless truth, though. What God wants then, what God wants now, what God always will want and desire from his people is for those people to give him a permanent residency of their hearts. It is a timeless truth scanning all throughout scripture and so many countless examples that, that man looks at the outward appearance. 
God looks at the heart. God looks, God's eyes zoom in on the human soul. And as we saw last week in the sacrifices of Cain and Abel, it was not so much what the sacrifice was. Yes, God wants us to to offer sacrifices to him. And yet it was not so much a sacrifice as what he was looking for was the heart of the sacrificer. And I think so often I forget that God is not at all fascinated by the stuff that, that we so often have been fascinated by. That so much of what we call beautiful is hideous in the eyes of God. And that so much of what is hideous to us is what God is enchanted by and what God calls a beautiful thing because it honors his lordship in this world. No, God never wanted, expected, or commanded a grandiose religious fireworks show. God wants his characteristics. God wants his Holy Spirit to perform a spiritual fireworks show in our souls, in our hearts. And I love so much the words of King David in Psalm, there in the book of Psalm. Psalm 51, of course, is where we we hear King David come to grips with with what he has done in terms of, of his adultery and murder and so forth. What he says in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 is this. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. And then notice especially verse 17, where he says so beautifully that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. That the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. As Jesus says later on, is a person who is poor in spirit. And oh God, you will not despise this. And I... I can't tell you how many times I have experienced in my life as a Christian just how true those words happen to be. Where it could be a church that is singing completely off-key. They sound like a pack of dogs outside of Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, it's, it's just, her, just horrific noise. You know, it's noise pollution. And yet, if it's coming straight from their souls, and they mean every, you know, feel every single syllable of those words, God is up in heaven closing his eyes, savoring every single melody that they're singing off key, thinking, this is a masterpiece to my ears. It can be a minister just like me who is stumbling over his words sometimes. He's not, not a, you know, um, he's not very smooth as you all know. And yet if it's coming from that minister's soul and his heart, God listens to that. And it's like a child who approaches their, their father. And they have art that they had made in first grade class, and it's nothing but just popsicle sticks. But in the eyes of their father, this is a masterpiece of art. And he hangs it up on the refrigerator. I have worshipped in churches that that had more than 1,200 people crammed inside. And yet it was as lifeless and as dead as a cemetery in that church. And yet on the other hand, I have sat at tables with just three or four other people, communing with them at the communion table. And and, and I mean, it was a table full of spirit. 
See, it's not always quantity with God as much as it is quality. And so with what shall I come before the Lord and to bow myself before the God on high? And whether it was Judah all of those centuries ago or it's us in the world of today, as you see in verse 8, as I see in verse 8, we already have God's answer, don't we? Where it says that, that he has already told you, O oh man, what is good. Now, I mentioned a moment ago what those three most important things were to many churches in our country. And yet notice what the three most important ways to honor God are and how different they, they are in comparison. Where, whereas God says, here is what I want from you, O oh, oh family of God. I want you to do justice. I want you to love kindness. And lastly, I want you to walk humbly with your God. Now, he says, do justice. And I know that in our English language, that, that has a very heavy legal meaning, doesn't it? Justice, justice, justice. And yet, that is exactly what God is speaking about here, though, nonetheless where in our lifetime we have seen all kinds of men who have gotten away with all kinds of heinous crimes simply because they were very wealthy and very prominent and very had a, a, a power in their industry. Amen. As we see a man like, like um, Harvey Weinstein, who's got all this money and power and fame, and for decade after decade keeps getting away with, with all of these horrific crimes against women, and yet when we see him brought to justice, that is an incredible thing in the world. Something right is happening there. Amen. We have stopped him from ever hurting another woman ever again. And that is justice. That is a very holy, a very sacred thing. Justice. It's a mother who is bursting in the tears in a courtroom as a verdict is announced. And what is welling up in her is that my son's killer is no longer going to ever be able to kill and kill ever again. My pain is being acknowledged. My pain has been vindicated. Justice. 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 Yes. God is a passionate God um, about this, about all of those in the world, whoever they happen to be, who are the oppressed. And yet this also has another meaning just beyond a courtroom, though. Now, it's one thing to actually get justice. Yet, notice in the text, as it says, also do justice. You see, we have a responsibility as God's holy nation to do justice in this world. What that word justice means is to do, simply do what is right. Simply do what ought to have been done all along that for whatever reason has not been accomplished up until this point. Now, before Amanda and I moved here to Westchester, I was working at a ministry that had served a lot of poor people, food and clothing and so forth. And we had a volunteer one afternoon who was going through a bag of clothes that had come in from, from you know, who knows where. A man had died, perhaps. She's going through this old coat, and she pulls out a couple of envelopes. Well, what is this? She opens up the envelopes, and what she finds is $15,000 in cash. And she's the only one in the room. 
There are no security cameras in this room. And this is a woman who does not have a lot of money. And without even a thought, she goes straight to my boss and she throws both of those heavy fat envelopes down on her table and says, here, this came in on the donation. I don't know who brought it in, but she just threw it on the table and said, it's just the right thing to do, I guess. <laughs> there might be a person who has family members who are going to need this money. So, And yet the point is, though, is that doing what is just, doing what is right, doing what ought to be done, doing unto others, as we would have them do unto us, that is not always very easy. And I just like to imagine if that happened to, to you or to me, where we're just going about our day and then all of a sudden 15 grand is right there in our face. Oh, there's nobody in the room. There's, wait a minute, there's nobody in the room right now. And I mean, as human beings, I mean, we, we have bills. We've got debts. We've got mortgages, surgeries perhaps that haven't put off. Maybe we need a vacation. And yet, what this woman did was just so mature, though. She did justice. She did what, what needed to be done desperately. And God smiles down on that kind of thing. He also says, love kindness. And notice that, that this is not just merely being kind to other people, but, but this is when we fall in love with being kind to other people. This is precious in God's sight. Last of all, he says, walk humbly with your God. And this also strikes me because notice this is the polar opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of corruption. This is us living on a daily basis, not for ourselves, but for God, in a way that remembers where he has brought us from. Aware of the fact that, that any goodness, any holiness that has, has made its way inside of me, that is only there because of Jesus Christ. And when we walk humbly with our God, God smiles down on us. This is what matters to God. And I close this morning with this thought. There had been a husband who had asked his wife, is there anything that you would like to receive as a Christmas gift this year? And his wife's face lights up and she says, for the longest time, I have wanted this. And it's not expensive at all. I mean, it just costs a few bucks, maybe. She said, if you get that for me for Christmas, I will treasure it for the rest of my life. So the husband goes to the store the next day, sees it in a window, but just as he goes to make the purchase, something else catches his eye. And so he does what, what any loving husband would do for his wife, and, he, and for her Christmas gift, he buys her a motorcycle. Gets her a motorcycle. It's expensive, it's flashy, it's, it, it's, it's big. Well, Christmas Day rolls around, and she is delirious with, with elation. She looks and she actually feels as if she is a 10-year-old girl on Christmas again. He says, I've got the gift out in the garage. She has this enormous smile on her face, and she goes inside the garage, though, and her smile vanishes. She can't even fake her happiness. She just looks at it for, for three minutes and goes, oh, 
And that's because what her husband gave her was not more. It was less. And what she wanted was not less. It was so much more. And our invitation here this morning comes to us in the voice of God in the book of Amos. Where even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Take away from me the melody of your harps. I am not listening. But let justice roll down like waters. And let righteousness stream like an ever-flowing river, like an ever-flowing ocean. My brothers and sisters, are the gifts that we are giving to God those gifts that that he is yearning for that will mesmerize him with with elation and with happiness or are we just buying god expensive gifts for ourselves with his name on the box